Hello, you are listening to a podcast version of a recent message from Freedom Church's Sunday service. Freedom Church is a brand new church plant in Buckeye, Arizona. We meet weekly at Odyssey Preparatory Academy on Apache Road for services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. If you're ever in the area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. My name is Andrew Cabani, and I'm the lead pastor of Freedom Church, and I just wanted to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our podcasts If you have a prayer request or want to make a decision for Christ after listening to our podcast, please, please, please contact us via the prayer request page on our website, freedomchurchaz.com. Enjoy and God bless. Amen. Will you guys grab the lights back there? Good morning. Good worship. Thank you. As I was worshiping, uh, I, I realized, I mean, Heidi and I have been together for 21 years now. And uh, she'd been singing worship that whole time. And I just realized it's never not going to make me cry when my wife's leading me in worship. It's just, it's just not going to happen. If it's not going to happen by now, it's just not going to happen like ever. So um, thank you for that worship, Heidi and Cody. Um, all right, let's take a hard pivot as we jump into our message this morning. Have you ever been slapped silly? Like, I mean, like, like actually like had your bell rung like Looney Tunes, Daffy Duck, Stars, kind of coming around, and doesn't necessarily need to be like, uh, some of you are like, hey, Andrew, like, we're in church, we don't talk about the dark days in church um, all that much, but doesn't necessarily need to be some, like, substance-related back alley brawl that you got into where you probably thought you looked like Chuck Norris, but you actually look like an inebriated baby giraffe when you were like, come here. Doesn't necessarily have to be that. For me, it happened uh, my junior year of high school. When uh, my illustrious high school football career lasted exactly one game. Uh, I got called up and played special teams on the uh, varsity team there. And I got put on kickoff coverage. And some of you already know uh, where this is going. And I was just sort of, we kicked the ball off. It lasted one play of one game, really. I mean, let's just, let's just put it that way. Um, and the ball got kicked off, and I might as well have been, like, trouncing through a meadow. Like, doo-doo-doo, this is fun. I got the cool jersey on this time. And some guy that had, like, 50 pounds on me just completely laid me out as I was running down the field. And that, like, that's the crazy thing about, like, football, our American sport, our very American sport, uh, America's new pastime, uh, football. There are no weight classes in football. Like, Every other sport that we have where the, uh, the goal is to assault the other person that you're going up against, they have weight classes. Like, the reason why, like, 240-pound Mike Tyson doesn't get into a ring with 155-pound Floyd Mayweather is because he might kill him if he actually lands a punch. But not in football. In football, we're like, hey, you, 330-pound offensive lineman, you see that 155-pound cornerback out there? Launch yourself into him as, fast, as hard as you can. And Good play, brother. Like, that's what we do when we play football. So that happened to me. Um, And as I was just staring up at the sky, seeing my own stars, um, I just sort of realized that football's not for me. It's not the career I'm going to go into. I'm going to go back to swimming and basketball. And wherever that guy who just hit me is not going to be, that's the sport that I'm going to decide to have there. As we pick up our study in the book of Acts uh, this morning, we are up to Acts chapter 9, where one of our characters that we introduced 
last week, Saul of Tarsus, gets spiritually and a little bit physically slapped silly um, by God. And that's the, this being slapped silly is sort of the starting point of Saul of Tarsus becoming known as the Apostle Paul, who goes on to write essentially the rest of the New Testament. So uh, in reverence for the word of God this morning, uh, will you stand with me as we read, if you can, the uh, Acts chapter 9. We're going to get started here in verse 1. It says, but Saul, still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was, he was without sight. And neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come, to, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, who, of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the, was the Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. You may be seated. We got introduced to Saul last week, um, and when we got introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, uh, just a quick intro to who Saul is, we are told that he was ravaging the church. That's what we know about Saul. He was a um, religious, he was one of the religious leaders who, when Stephen was giving his big, great message in Acts chapter 7, was one of the, he was in the audience, he was one of the religious leaders who was hearing Stephen give his message in Acts chapter 7. 
He also consented to Stephen then being murdered after he gave his message. And then again in Acts chapter 8, we learn that he was literally going from home to home and dragging people out of their houses who called on the name of the Lord and arresting them, throwing them in prison, and killing some of them just for putting their faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we, talked, we said this last week, but this is our introduction to the man who would later become to, come to be known as the Apostle Paul, and he was not very apostle as we meet him to start. He's literally going the other direction. So as we start to jump in here, um, I want to give you a little bit more into Saul's story because we're going to really fully suss out who this person is as we learn more about him this morning, give kind of a little bit more background on who he is. According to Easton's Bible Dictionary, Saul was a native of Tarsus, which was a Roman province in south East, in the southeast of Asia Minor. I know that's a lot, but the key there is Roman. His father was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin of pure and unmixed Jewish blood. So he was a, a, a Jew of a Jew, a Hebrew of a Hebrew. He was, had the bloodline that went back all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he was respected within the Hebrew community. Though a Jew, his father was a Roman citizen, a privilege that was given to Saul at birth, and something that was and will come to be very, very important in the life of Saul, that he was also a Roman, that he was a Jew and he was also a Roman and was subject to the same privileges that all Roman citizens were allowed to have. The Romans were, are kind of credited with what we would probably call like our Bill of Rights now. They were the first society to really give people personal liberties and if you weren't a Roman, you didn't get those personal liberties. But because Saul could say that he was a Roman by birth, he got those. And that becomes important as we, we go on in his story. We're told that Tarsus at the time was noted as a city that boasted some of the best schools in the known world at that time. And we're told that Saul was given the ability to attend all of them. He was also given the opportunity to study to become a rabbi with another famous and renowned rabbi at the time whose name was Gamaliel. I don't know if I said that right. But he was a famous rabbi, and he got to kind of be uh, study underneath him during that time. So essentially what we're saying is that Saul was the embodiment of what you would want a Jewish rabbi to be if you could, like, cook him up in a lab. He was, like, the perfect iteration of what they would want their leaders to be. He had a good family. He was a Roman citizen. He was smart and clever. He was learned. He, and he had accomplished basically every wisdom that this earth could offer him at the time. But as we find him here in our scriptures, he's sort of spiraling a bit. Again, remember in Acts chapter 7, it says that he consented to the, to the killing of Stephen. He was one of the people who said, yeah, we need to get rid of this guy. He's making too much sense. It's cutting to our heart. He's making us feel uncomfortable. Please shut him up by stoning him. That was essentially what, what was happening there. And so, so Saul was one of the guys who consented to this. But he was not one who carried out the action. He was not one who, at this point, he sort of is still embodying what we just sort of talked about in his history, this sort of prim, proper, perfect Jewish 
rabbi, doesn't get his hands too dirty, realizes what scripture told him uh, when, he, when you study the Old Testament that David, being a man of war, there was too, God told him there's too much blood on your hands to actually build the temple and worship me. That's going to be left to your son Solomon. And so that, that, was a, that was kind of a thing that a lot of the leaders thought of. Well, let's not get our hands too dirty here because we know that God doesn't really like that. And so he was very much at the time where he consents to Stephen's murder, still sort of hands off. So the guy in the chair, so to speak, the guy behind the curtains. But then scripture is really clear to bring our attention to the idea that Saul notices as Stephen is being murdered, that he looks up to heaven and it says that his, his face shone white like an angel, essentially. And that Stephen began to pray for all of the people who were killing him. That even as he was being murdered, he was praying for those people that God wouldn't kind of put that on their record, would forgive them because they didn't really understand what they were doing. And it's from that moment on that this spiraling starts to happen that we've been introduced for through in Saul over the last couple of weeks. That all of a sudden he goes from the guy in the chair, the guy you know, telling other people to murder, to now he's literally dragging people out of their houses, committing them to prison, killing them, wrecking havoc on the church. And so the question is like, what happened there? And what a lot of Bible scholars, what a lot of Bible teachers, commentators will, will kind of talk about is they will point to this moment when Stephen, who Saul looked at as somebody who wasn't as learned as he was, he was just a guy that was chosen by the church to like serve tables. He was a waiter essentially in the church. And he, so Saul looked at him as somebody who didn't have as much knowledge and training as Saul had. But he realized in that moment when he was getting, when he was being killed, that somehow Stephen had accrued more wisdom than he had. That the peace that Stephen had on his face just, it was something that sort of snapped from him. And so now he's doubling down and sort of spiraling out of control. What lessons can we learn from this? Well, from Stephen's perspective, the love that he showed in the face of persecution was the seed that was planted that resulted in the greatest apostle that the world has ever known and literally millions of salvations in Jesus Christ through the apostle Paul. It was that seed that was planted, the idea that Stephen was able in the midst of persecution to show love was the seed that was planted that ultimately resulted in the Apostle Paul and all of the amazing things that came from it. You never know what showing love, especially in the face of persecution, can do for someone. And it may not show immediate dividends. It definitely didn't show immediate dividends for Stephen. He died. <laughs> he didn't get to see the dividends of what he was doing in that moment be able to play out on this side of eternity. Um, and, and the same could be for us. If we decide to show love in the face of persecution, we may not see how that affects somebody right then and there. But again, it could be that little bit of light that shines in your own life that is somebody who's drowning in darkness. It's, it's a lighthouse to somebody who's drowning in darkness. Show your love. Share it with someone at the store or shine the light on Gulp <clears throat> Facebook or social media, shine your light out there in the world. 
Um, invite someone to church. Share a podcast because it affected you so, in, in such a way. Give somebody the opportunity to go in and hear from God. See a little bit of light in the darkness. You never know what kind of effect it can have on somebody. So as we pick up with Saul, he has traveled 130 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's about six days journey just so that he can basically get new intel on other followers of Jesus so he can arrest and kill them. That's a, the lengths this I wrote, wrote down here. It's truly, it truly is amazing the lengths we will go to to feel like the way that we think about something is the quote-unquote right way to think about something. We mentioned last week that Saul 100% believes he's in the right right now, that he's doing God a favor by getting these crazy Jesus followers out of, out of here. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. And he's going hundreds of miles away just so that he could get new intel to get new Christians out of the way. And the first thing that happens to him as he's doing this is that Jesus gets a hold of him. And our first point here, slaps some sense into him. He slaps some sense into him. We just read, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul's on a rampage. He is wrecking havoc on the church. And Jesus responds by shining a great light from heaven. Paul will talk about his conversion a couple of other times in his other writings. It, you know, it comes back. It comes up a lot. Right? And there, are, there are multiple times in the book of Acts and in the epistles that Paul wrote where he talks about when he came to know Jesus Christ. And that makes sense, right? I love to talk about when I came to know Jesus Christ. I think a lot of us in our conversations, when we're trying to make sense of this world, we go back to that point when we met Jesus for that first time, when we heard him speak our name, and we finally said, I will put my faith in you. It's a big event for all of us. And so Saul, Paul does the exact same thing in his writings. And it also helps us to sort of paint this picture a little bit more of the event that we're reading here. So like in Acts 22, it tells us that this happened in the middle of the day. It happened right as the sun was the most brightest, the most brightest, not, not, word, not good words, um, but was at its brightest um, is when this, when this particular thing happened. And don't worry that the sun was at, the, at its brightest at this moment because according to Acts 26, the light that shone from heaven was way brighter than anything that the sun could do. This was a bright, bright light. I think we can all relate to that having walked in here with the brightness of an Arizona sun in the, uh, in the desert in the middle of the summer. Uh, we can all relate to that bright, bright light. Well, this was multiple times exponentially more bright than even the brightness of the sun. And this heavenly light that even the brightest day shone down, as it made it so that it was like dark as night, and it encapsulated Saul and literally threw him to the ground, slapped him to the ground, so to speak. And then Jesus uses an audible voice to introduce himself to Saul and ask him, why are you persecuting me? Sometimes you just don't get it until someone slaps some sense into you. Doesn't need to be a physical thing, necessarily. We're getting ready to go on a trip this week, and um, my oldest daughter 
is going ahead of us. She's going with my, my mom and my grandma. They're going up there today, and we'll be there tomorrow. But she's leaving ahead of us. And this is really the first time that she's gotten to kind of do her own thing. She packed her own bag, and she was like, feels like she's cool because her little brother and sister don't get to go ahead. They don't get the 24-hour advance on this uh, trip. But she came into my office late last night. I had put the kids to bed. It was probably 45 minutes had passed. She was supposed to be asleep. She scared me when she came into my office as I was kind of putting together, finishing touches on stuff. She came into my office, and she was in a complete panic. She was like, Dad, I, I packed my bag, but I, I don't know if I have everything, and, and what if I forgot something, and it's really important, and I don't know what I, And she was like, she was spiraling out of control, and I, I had to, like, stop her, and I didn't slap her, but I had to stop her, and I had to remind her, like, honey, like, do you know who we are? Like, do you know what parents you got? Like, your mom's going to double-check your bag before she lets you leave, and, like, we're going to be there the next day, and if, if you forgot something, we're going to take care of it. Like, we had to remind her, like, don't you know who we are? Don't you know that we got, we got you? And that's sort of what's happening here to Saul. Like, he, he feels like he's doing the right thing for God. He feels like he's, he's, he's trying to hold on to these little nuggets of wisdom, but then Jesus came and turned everything on his head, and he's trying to understand that and make it make sense to, with all the scriptures that he learned. And he doesn't understand, and it's forcing him to act out violently in some cases. And finally, God just says, hey, do you know who I am? Stop for a second. Do you know who I am? I am Jesus, and you're persecuting me. And I had to stop him there in that moment and just sort of slap some sense into him. Sometimes we need this in our lives. We might be living our lives and allowing them to kind of spiral. And Jesus needs to grab us with all of the emotion that he shows here to Saul. All the emotion. Look at, your, look at the scriptures again. Look at the emotion that's placed there. What, what, what emotion? I don't see it. It's just words on a page. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? It's a repeat there in the scriptures. He says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? What's up with the double there? Well, we see that a couple of times. Again, this is Jesus speaking. I know because it's read in my Bible. Um, <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. And there are a couple times in the New Testament where we see Jesus do the same thing. Repeat the name of who he's addressing. In, um, when he's speaking to Martha, when Martha is sort of doing the same thing. She's spiraling. All these people are coming. And they all need to be fed, and everybody needs a sandwich, and my sister won't get off the floor, and she's just over here, like, praying, and things need to happen. And Jesus stops her, and he says, Martha, Martha, everything's going to be okay. Do you know who I am? It's the same type of conversation. Same type of thing he says in Matthew chapter 23 when he's about to go into Jerusalem for the last time to bear the cross. He looks out on the landscape of Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I'm here to do what my father called me to do. It's this compassion that God gives. And that's what he's doing here for Saul. Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? You, You've gotten too twisted up. Let's back it up a little bit. Let me remind you who I am. And he does it with us too. 
We allow our lives to sort of spiral out of control. We're trying to make sense of things. We kind of get maybe mixed up with the wrong people or mixed up in the wrong things. And we just, we just keep going and day after day, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you say, ah, I'm not going to do that this time. But then the, it happens, and then you're there, and you mess up again, and you're like, how am I so fragile? I'm going to do better the next time. And then at some point, you're like, I just have done this so many times. I'm just going to give up, and I'm just going to completely give into it. And like Saul, now I'm just going to give into my wildest fears and my wildest temptations, and I'm going to do what makes me feel good because I can't hold up to any other standard. And then Jesus has to grab you and be like, Andrew, Andrew, I love you. Do you know who I am? I'm here for you. I've called you to better things, just like he does here with Saul. Sometimes you have to have some, slap some sense into you a little bit. And the King James tells us that uh, Saul responds with the same two questions that we should too. Whenever we hear that repeat of our name, whenever he says, hey, 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 calm down, the response should be the same as Saul gives. He says two things. He says, who are you? <laughs> Reveal yourself to me, God. And he says, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do I do next? And then be willing to follow. And Jesus responds by giving him what ultimately amounts to, our second point, a slap on the wrist. He ultimately gives him a slap on the wrist. We read that he is told to get up, go into the town, stay there until God tells him otherwise, and that he gets up. And when he gets up, he actually can't see anymore. You're saying, that's a little more than a slap on the wrist. All of a sudden, dude is blind. Um, Ultimately, we know the end of the story. That's why I can say slap on the wrist, because he gets his sight back. But what amounts to sort of a slap on the wrist. So blinded, he goes to the house, and he doesn't eat or drink for three total days. And Scripture tells us he just prayed. Just waiting for a man named Ananias to come and lay hands on him so that he can be filled with the Holy Spirit. A couple of things here. First, this man, Saul, who had probably said hundreds of prayers as a rabbi, as a religious authority, but this may have been the first time that he actually prayed. I'll repeat that. He said, as a rabbi, hundreds and hundreds of prayers, but this may have been the first time that he actually prayed. There's a difference there. There's a little bit of a difference there between just saying the words, coming to church, bowing your head when the preacher says, say, let's pray together, saying amen when the preacher says amen at the end, allowing yourself to listen to the words and repeat the words and say the words, and even as you worship, say some of the hallelujahs and thank you, Jesuses, and all of those things that we say. There's a difference between just that and actually praying. This is the first time that he, Saul, does what the book of Psalms tells us when it says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Every other prayer that was uttered by his lips was simply words that had to be said for work or to fit in. This was the first time he actually prayed to God. We have to be careful with this. That we are constantly praying from our heart. That's what God wants. That we're constantly, whenever we're opening up our lips, to pray to God, to talk to God, that it's coming from our hearts, that it's not just the, I have to say this because these are the words that I say when it's Jesus time, right? 
to think that this is, these are the words that I have to say because it makes me sound super spiritual. No, God wants to hear from you directly. The same way that you would give the lowdown to your best friend when you had a really bad day and you called him up. You're like, you're not going to believe what happened today. That's the way that, that God wants you to talk to him from the heart. What you're feeling in that moment. Not just repeating words for repeating words' sakes. Now, sometimes when we take the word of God and we put a repetition to it in our minds, that's helpful in studying the word of God, but not so much when we're praying. When we're praying, we should be coming from our hearts to what God has to say. Additionally, Saul is broken down here physically and spiritually. Over three days, and then this guy Ananias comes and lays hands on, us, on him, and verse 17 tells us that he was then filled with the Holy Spirit. But before that happens, he is broken. Saul is a broken man. He went from high on his horse, which I think in culture we think of him being knocked off his horse. Like, we haven't read about a horse yet, right? Horses were last week. So for some of you, that's really funny. Like, we, just, we did horses were last week. Um, we don't, there's nothing about a horse here. I don't know where the, the idea of, of Paul getting knocked off his horse at conversion, none of that happens. But he's on his high horse, for sure. He's out doing what he thinks he's going to do. And now, all of a sudden, like, fast forward, and he's, like, in a room, in the dark, can't see, not eating, not drinking, just, like, hanging out, waiting for some dude named Ananias that he's never met before to come because God told him to. He's broken at this moment. I'm going to say this, and if you don't get anything else today, if you walk away with nothing else besides preacher said slap silly in, in, in service today, go home with this. Brokenness is a prelude for filling. Brokenness is a prelude for filling. Sometimes we have to be broken down in order to be correctly filled back up. You guys remember years ago, we had those above ground pools that had like the inflatable ring at the top of them. Those sucked, didn't they? Those, those were the worst because we had one of those and you, at some point, if you didn't do it right, the inflatable would kind of go like this. And then like, if you got in, like the water would just all fall out and you could not fix it when the water was all in it. You had to drain all the water out. You had to fix the sides correct the structure a little bit, make sure it was perfect, and then it would rise all perfectly. But if you didn't do that, you were going to have a crooked pool at the end of it. Some of you didn't spend the time being frustrated with it like I did. Obviously, that meant more to me than some of you. But the point still stands. Sometimes we have to be broken all the way down so that God can build us back up correctly in the best way for us. Because if something was, again, off kilter, sometimes it's got to be broken all the way down before it can be fixed. That's sort of how God does with our spiritual lives. Got to break the whole thing down, fix the foundation, and then build it back up. It's important for us to understand that as we go, if we are in a season of brokenness, to know that in the grand scheme of things, it's just, an, it's just a slap on the wrist as far as God's concerned. In the grand scheme scheme of things, from God's perspective, the brokenness that we may be feeling, although it hurts, although it's difficult, from God's perspective, it may just be a slap on the wrist, and that he's there to break us down so that he can fill us back up. The other thing that's important to note about brokenness being a prelude to filling 
is that it's important that we have to get off the mat. Sometimes, well, not sometimes, all the time, God does not want you living in your brokenness. He wants you to eventually be filled back up and built back up. We at times will allow ourselves to live in our brokenness. I did this. How can I ever be restored at this point? Where, when Ananias actually comes to, to try to breathe life into us and to lay hands on us, we lock the door because how, how can I be forgiven for the things that I've done? I've, I'm broken. I, I've gone through this world, and I haven't listened to God. So why would Ananias come to lay hands on me to restore me? And God does not want you living in that. Brokenness is a prelude to filling. You cannot live in your brokenness. God wants you up off the mat. He wants to restore you. He wants you to feel whole again. He wants to, as in the case of Saul, use you for his kingdom and the amazing things and call that he's put on your life. Don't stay on the mat. Allow yourself to be filled back up. And while this might have been a great story for Saul, here for Ananias, this might have felt like, our next one, a slap in the face. This might have felt like a slap in the face. Here is Ananias just minding his own business as a follower of Christ. Not an easy thing in the early church as we've been studying. These people have been scattered all, all across the, the world as we know it, being dragged out of their houses. They've had to dis disperse from Jerusalem and go hundreds of miles away. Not an easy thing to be a Christian in Damascus at that time. Not really an easy thing to be a Christian in Damascus even in our times, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but not an easy thing to be a Christian. Ananias is doing the thing. He's trying to be a good man, lead his family the way that God has called him to lead his family, be the man that God has called him to be, and God kind of calls up, gives his God 911 in the form of a vision, and he says, <clears throat> Go into the lion's den with this guy, Saul. This would be the equivalent of telling a Jew to go lay hands on Hitler in the 40s. This, would, like, this is the equivalent to that. This is the man. And that's why Ananias has a little bit of pause here. He says, hey, uh, God, it, it, this is the guy that we're supposed to be, like, avoiding, right? Like, I heard he was on, they had, like, a scroll pinned up at, like, the church. And they're like, if you see this dude, like, lock your doors because he's probably going to drag you out by your hair, like, from what I knew, we're not supposed to mess with this dude. Um, and now you're telling me to go by myself and just, like, be near him? Seems kind of dangerous. Not sure if I really want to do that. Man, God, what are you asking me to do? It makes sense, again, why he hesitates. Here's what we know about Ananias, though. When God called on him, his response was, quote, here I am. And when God gave him specific instructions, he did not delay in going. When he told him, go to this street, go to this town, go to this house, go to this room, this man will be there. He's waiting for you, and I have a, a job for you to do. Next verse, so he went. God, here I am. Tell me where you want to go. And then go without delay. I don't know about you, but I, I want God to give me some assignments that don't make sense to me all the time. 
that seem dangerous in the sense that it might make me look foolish or not may not make the most sense in my mind or I don't understand why God's sending me here. But I think churches are full of people who just want those assignments that are super easy and make total sense in their mind. God, send me to Hawaii so I can preach to the dolphins and, uh, and hang out on the beach all day. Those people need you, right, Jesus? Like, send me there because I'm cool there, Right? But not enough people like Ananias who are, who are willing to be like, God, what are, you, what are you asking me to do? Okay, I'm in it. And I think that it's when we get to that point. When we get to that point as a church, God, what are you asking us to do in this community? From the ground up, just, just from nothing into something. That's not the way that this works a lot of times. Usually there's like a lot more of something and then it turns into a lot bigger or something, but nothing to something that's really difficult. Oh, and by the way, like, give basically everything you have as a church. Like, give it away to serve other people and make sure you're blessing those people along. And then, like, we'll, put, we'll, make, all, we'll make sure every check clears. Okay, that's kind of weird, but we're going to go for it. And that's the life that God wants us. That's the level that God wants us to live at. Not that comfort level where it's like, okay, God, I'll do all the things that make sense to me. No, God, I'll go do all the things that only make sense to you. And I'll do it. And I'll put my faith in you the whole time. And I'll trust you all the way through it. That's what God wants to raise up his people to be. Last thing here. Saul's uh, response. Saul's response to Jesus was, what do you want me to do? And Jesus gives him the first step in what he, wants, what he wants him to do. Go to this house and wait. It's been three days, and from Saul's perspective, he has no idea how much longer it's going to take for this to actually come into step two. And I think God does that a lot of times when we're looking for God to give us the next step. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me, God? What's next for me? What are you calling me to, God? A lot of times he doesn't give you the entirety of the picture. I want you to do this, and then I want you to go to Philippi and Galatia and Corinth, back to Rome, and I want you to then go on a secondary trip, and I want you to bring all these people. Could he have given that all to Saul right now, who's like just like hanging out in the dark, and he's <laughs> starving, can't see anything? That wouldn't have been something that Saul would have been able to take all in, but he gave him just the next step. The next step was go here. And wait till I tell you otherwise. And so he listened. And he got there. But as he's waiting, and he knows this guy Ananias is coming. God has given them kind of this mutual vision between Ananias and Saul. So he kind of knows that Saul is coming. Excuse me, that Ananias is coming to lay hands on him. But he doesn't know what that's going to look like. <laughs> All the scripture really says is lay hands on him. I mean, you can look, lay hands on him. Like, you don't know really what is exactly about to happen and when Ananias comes and Saul lets him into the room and Saul's just essentially sitting there bracing for impact because he knows what he deserves. As we continue to study the word that's, that Paul wrote, we know that he's a broken man at this point and he knows that he deserves nothing right now because of a persecution that he's put on the church. And the final slap comes, but it turns into a slap, a slap on the back. Just a slap on the back. It's encouragement from Ananias. Ananias doesn't say Saul of Tarsus, God sent me. He doesn't say Saul the slayer or Rabbi Saul. He says, Brother Saul. Those are the words that he uses. Brother Saul. Jesus, who you met on the road, has sent me to lay hands on you that you may receive your sight and be filled, excuse me, with the Holy Spirit. 
You never know who God is going to send while you are in the midst of your brokenness, while you're in the midst of your pain to be an encouragement during that time. There's really a lesson to to learn on both sides. On the one hand, to be an encouragement to as many people as you can. Kind of what we talked about a little bit before. You never know how you just being a good disciple and just being encouraging to people and just being around other people and just having that spirit of encouragement, you have no idea what that could mean to somebody who's in a really dark place. As I mentioned before, it could be a lighthouse. That little flicker of light could be a lighthouse to somebody who's drowning in darkness. Just be encouraging to a lot of people. On the other hand, it's important for us to remember, if we put ourselves in Saul's shoes, to be around God's people when we're going through stuff. I've been there before, but the flesh makes you want to withdraw from people when you're going through stuff. It makes you want to stop going to church. It makes you want to not be around God's people whenever you're going through something. And that's the exact opposite of what we need to do. We need to be around God's people, to give them opportunity to be encouragement in our lives. So to recap, sometimes God needs to slap some sense into you when your life is spiraling and you need to be reminded who he is. Sometimes you need to slap on the wrist. Sometimes we need to be broken down so that he can fill us back up. And sometimes it might feel like a slap in the face, but we have to receive God's direction with humility and take on any assignment that he calls calls us to, knowing that he will also give us a slap on the back, encouragement as we go through. Before we close here, I just, this is more Bible study stuff. This doesn't fall in line with the theme of our lesson here, but this is just, I feel like it's very important as we go forward in our study of the book of Acts, and hopefully you can join us again, especially next week, so we can celebrate six months as a church together. Um, But it says in verse 15, and this is really, really important just in the life of Paul, of Saul, and his ministry. It says, God tells Ananias in sort of this shared, again, vision that he's having with Saul. God tells Ananias, he says in verse 15, that, that Paul, that Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Many Bible scholars have sort of pointed out that this is the order that is the blessing in Paul's life. That he is called to first the Gentiles, and all good Gentiles said, praise the Lord, thank you Jesus, right? First to the Gentiles, then to the leaders, the kings, and then to the children of Israel, then to the Jewish people. And every time as you study the the word of God, as you study Paul's journey, every single time that he gets himself in trouble, it's usually because he's going out of order. Scripture tells us that Paul, like, loves his brethren. He loves the children of Israel. He loves his people, but God has called him to the Gentiles. And over and over again, he tries to, like, go back. Like, the immediate thing that he does, and you can read the rest of chapter 9 and, um, this week. I'd encourage you to do so. But the immediate thing that, that, that Saul does, God calls him to the Gentiles first and to the Jews last. But the very first thing he does is go straight to the synagogue. There's not a lot of Jews, or excuse me, Gentiles, hanging out in the synagogue. There's really one type of person that's hanging out in the synagogue. And we read a little bit of that, that they, were, they didn't really get it. They were kind of confounded by what he was doing in the synagogue. And so much so, and you can read the rest of the chapter, that they try to kill him, and he has to escape, and there's all that kind of stuff going on. But every time you read about Paul, 
That's the ministry that God has given him. To the Gentiles first, then to the leadership, then to the children of Israel. And that will be important as we continue to go this way. Cody, you can make your way up here as we close. As we close, there's, there's a couple of things that I'd like for you to sort of think about when we talk about Paul, when we talk about Saul. And the first thing that I would like to point out to you is that Jesus was for Saul even when Saul wasn't for Jesus. Jesus was for Saul even before Saul was for Jesus. Even when Saul wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus went and found him. And the question could be for you this morning, is that, is that the same thing for you? That you may not be looking for Jesus. That you may be here because you feel like you have to be or you feel some social obligation to be here or you just wanted to come see uh, me talk. I don't know. And you may not be looking for Jesus this morning. But can I be so bold as to say that Jesus is looking for you? And that even as you may not be for Jesus this morning, I can be so bold as to say Jesus is for you. And this morning, when he calls out your name, he will do it in the exact same type of way that he did when he called out the name of Saul. He'll do it with that same emotion. He'll say it twice. So nice, he'll say it twice. And he says, Saul, Saul. And for you this morning, I would encourage you, as we get ready to pray and open up the altars, to be listening for that, that double name drop as well, that he may call out to you. The other thing is that, um, like Saul, he thought his life was going in uh, one way. He thought he was going to be like world's best rabbi. He was like competing for top notch on the rabbi scale or whatever that looks like. And then God got a hold of his life. But it's not that Saul needed to necessarily change who he was. God wanted to take all of those characteristics, all of those great things that were in, in sewn into who Saul was, and he didn't want him to change any of it. So many times we think when we come to God, he wants to change all these things in our lives, and I'm not going to be able to be the same person that I know I am, and I can't be comfortable in my own skin, and that couldn't be further from the truth. All he wanted to do was take Saul and all the talents and all the treasures and all the great things that were in Saul and just redirect him for his purpose. And so when you come to know Jesus Christ, it's not because you've got to go change your life to be a, be a part of his kingdom. God wants you just the exact way that you are. He just wants to turn you for his kingdom. Use all those same great things that make you who you are, that make you beautifully and masterfully made, as the Bible tells us. And this just turned them for his good and for his glory. He wants you just the way you are. Whatever it is, again, these are some of the lessons that we can learn as we look at Saul. Will you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray. And we will do like we do every Sunday. We open up the altars for prayer. And whatever that looks like for you, if this morning you're hearing that still small voice, that, that double name drop that Saul got, and you feel like it's, it's your day of salvation, we'd love for you to come down the aisle and to pray with me, and we'd love to pray with you, lay hands on you. If there's a need in the church, if there's a health need or any of those things, we want to be able to open up the altars to pray for you, or you can pray right from your seat. We just we give time every week.
close down our service, and it's not about singing another song. They sing beautifully, and it's, it's fun to worship, but it's not, just, it's not about continuing the worship, continuing to sing a song. It's about giving some moments of just bring it all down, and before we leave this place, we have the opportunity to meet with God, to hear from him, and to work with him spiritually on whatever we're dealing with this morning or whatever the Holy Spirit has taught us from the word this morning. Whatever it is, we open up the altars to you this morning. And as I pray, Father, we thank you. Bless your people. Father, as we open up these altars, Lord, will you just, uh, in the hearts of every person that's in here, Lord, will you just begin to open up those, those altars in their hearts where you can get in, where they can hear from you this morning. Father, give them the encouragement to respond if they're to hear their name this morning, Father. Whatever that need is, we give it to you all. In Jesus' name.